I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is the very first bonus episode of Reimagining Liberty. While I plan to stick to my every other week release schedule, I'm going to try occasionally releasing bonus episodes in the in-between weeks. Just like regular episodes, these will come out two weeks early for supporters. If you want to become a supporter, just click the link in the show notes. For this first bonus episode of Reimagining Liberty, we're looking at Robert Nozick's classic work of libertarian philosophy, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Released in 1974, it's the book that put libertarianism on the map within contemporary academic philosophy. Nozick argued for a strong conception of rights, including property rights, and then traced out what that means for government, including whether rights allow for any government at all. Anarchy, State, and Utopia deserves its classic status and is a genuine delight to read. But that doesn't mean its arguments are airtight or that it's the best defense of libertarianism. To help me re-examine Nozick's book, I'm joined by Professor Matthew McManus, author of The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, Neoliberalism, Postmodern Culture, and Reactionary Politics, as well as Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Whether you agree or disagree with Nozick's arguments in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, it's a terrifically fun book to discuss. Matt, you had reached out to me and pitched the idea for this episode of looking back at Robert Nozick's classic text, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, and perhaps reassessing it. So why don't we start with you? What what was it about this text that made you want to have this conversation? Well, the biggest thing is I think it is just a really good book, right? Uh, it's well-written. It's well-argued. It's well-conceived. Uh, you know, it has a lot of virtues uh, as a pure work of philosophy. Uh, but I think more than that, you know, it's important to situate this book in historical context, right? Uh, back in the 1960s, um, there was this kind of cliched argument that was made uh, in Anglo circles that, you know, political philosophy was dead. Um, you know, we had all kind of more or less settled on the idea that some flavor of utilitarianism, you know, you take your pick. Keynesian utilitarianism, Hayekian utilitarianism, that or consequentialism. That's, you know, the right way forward, and we don't have to have any more disputes about that. Uh, and then, of course, in 1971, you have John Rawls publish A Theory of Justice, which lays out this pretty magisterial uh, argument for a kind of left liberalism. Later on in his life, he actually moves overtly towards, you know, property-only democracy or liberal socialism. You know, and Nozick uh, was at Harvard with Rawls. Um, and obviously, if you read the book, um, he has a lot of respect for Rawls. He takes the book extremely seriously, uh, has nothing but praise for the kind of scope of its ambition. Kind of refreshing in our partisan age, if you think about it, right? You know, that he's just like, you know, this is a great book. I disagree with every part of it. But I mean, that's where the nuts and bolts come in. He says, you know, I disagree with this book. I don't think it's right. So here's my libertarian, if as it were, alternative uh, to Rawls's conception, uh, which he puts flesh on throughout the course of the book. And I think it's a very interesting book um, beyond just that historical argument, that position, uh, or that historical status for three reasons. The first is I do think it makes the most compelling moral argument uh, for a political system that attaches very strict respect for property rights and the kind of associated individual liberties that we would think of that come from that. Uh, there are other consequentialist books that make a more powerful consequentialist case uh, for strict property rights like Hayek, right? But I mentioned earlier, but this is the best purely moral defense of that. Uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting about this book is unlike many people in the libertarian tradition, you can think of something like Ayn Rand. Uh, Ayn Rand, um, who knows, I've had some nice things to say about, right? You could really see how, in some circumstances, the form uh, of her moral outlook eventually swallowed 
uh, its kind of libertarian spirit, uh, since you had posed these kind of very strict constraints uh, on what constituted the proper expression of freedom. And you think about how rigid and dogmatic she was in personal life. Nozick isn't like that at all, right? At the end of the book, he has this almost anarchic uh, vision of what the future is going to look like, where he says, you know, if you want to have a communist society, a Christian fundamentalist society, you do you, right? I have no problem with any of that. If anything, I see it as something to celebrate uh, as a reflection of, you know, the creativity and innovation of the human spirit. Uh, Just don't try to impose it upon anyone else, right? Uh, And this, I think, is a very refreshing uh, and interesting kind of approach to libertarianism uh, that, again, you don't necessarily see in what I might call pop libertarianism or bordertarianism, which we talked about last time, right, Aaron, uh, any longer. So I thought it might be useful to talk about the book a bit uh, just to kind of refresh the audience's memory uh, of this great libertarian thinker who was, frankly, much more libertarian uh, than many of the people who claim that label today in the sincere sense. It's funny. I, I, in a sense, I, uh, I'm a huge uh, longtime fan of, of Nozick's work uh, and actually had the, the, the good fortune of, uh, as far as I know, being the, the person to give the last published interview with Nozick uh, before his uh, untimely uh, death uh, some 20 years ago now. But I, I actually see, in a sense, I see the value of anarchy, state, and utopia in, in a somewhat different way, which is, and I think part of what contributes, I mean, part of what contributes to its longevity, I'd say one thing is just it's, it is maybe the um, the argument for libertarianism that is at least in, in sort of academic circles viewed as sort of the most respectable uh, and, and uh, you know, in accord with sort of professional philosophical norms. Um, but also that it's, it's in a way a highly modular book, by which I mean, um, Nozick himself, and this is sort of a through line in his work, is, um, you know, some people would say almost disarmingly kind of open about uh, where there are gaps in the argument, where he doesn't have uh, a, you know, a fully rigorously uh, worked out uh, line of line of argument. Um, and, you know, I think there are plenty of places in anarchy, state and utopia one one could sort of point to uh, and, and say, well, um, you know, there are there are gaps here that he will acknowledge. Uh, but one virtue of this approach is that um, you can kind of knock out parts of it that, that may not work or that you're not, you're not convinced of, or that, uh, for whatever reason, don't quite get there, um, and still have modules, um, that are extremely interesting and useful. So for example, I think, um, if you're doing any kind of, uh, you know, either meta ethics or first order ethics, um, the example of, for example, the experience machine, um, is a really useful sort of intuition, intuition pump, um, for thinking about questions of value, uh, in a way that has a really very little to do uh, directly with whether or not you are convinced of his political philosophy. Um, uh, you know, so I think there's a lot in uh, Anarchy, State, and Utopia that is interesting and valuable, um, even if it is part of a larger argument that, you know, you don't find wholly convincing or that it isn't worked out in a level of rigor um, that you say, okay, well, he's, he's you know, proven, proven the case we can stop doing philosophy forever now. On that... So the last time I read this book was probably 15 years ago. And so to prep for this conversation, I actually got the audiobook version of it, which I don't recommend to people as their first pass at the book because it's very much like a drink from the fire hose experience when you're listening to it in audio. But that that kind of – what you just brought up, Julian, of the modularness of it and the asides in it and the little pieces that you can pull out and are interesting even if they don't you know, aren't all that central to the overall argument 
really comes through also in like the delightfulness of his prose, which in the audio is like you very much get the sense of this. This is what it felt like to be lectured by Nozick and that he would have been just an incredibly fun lecturer who had was could wander off into anecdotes or weird ideas that occurred to him, but like were brilliant to everyone else, you know, um, like that. That just very much comes through that it's. You compare it, you know, it gets partnered with Rawls, and it is just this book is worlds different in its style from A Theory of Justice, which is, however good and interesting the ideas are, is not an exciting book in its prose and presentation. But this one is just like you get you get such a sense of Nozick as a man, as the man in this, um, as just like a personality talking to you, uh, which I think sets it apart from a lot of the books that it gets it gets grouped with. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And what's interesting is that uh, he carried forward with this literary style over the course of his life. Uh, like, if you look at his next two books, um, The Exam in Life, which I didn't think was actually all that good, uh, but Philosophical Explanations, uh, which is actually very good, you know, both are almost like experimental texts uh, in the sense that they'll put forward sometimes radically interesting ideas, um, even ideas that you wouldn't expect uh, an Anglo-libertarian uh, thinker to put forward. Like there's this long digression on Heidegger uh, in philosophical explanations. And then there's a lengthy excursus on Adorno, of all things, in Examined Life. And you're like, I don't know what this is doing here. Fine, why not? Let's go with that. And he never necessarily uh, kind of culminates or systematizes any of these lines of thought. Uh, but what you do see in this is a real generosity of spirit and intellectual curiosity uh, that I think does actually touch briefly on his uh, political philosophy. Uh, because, of course, this celebration of creative human potentials in a free society uh, and the diversity of opinion uh, that'd be associated with that is something that you really see in his books uh, where you almost sometimes think that the different ideas put forward are like people who are talking to one another over the course of the text, each one of whom is given their due uh, and each one of which has a little bit of time uh, to take center stage before he kind of moves on. Uh, and interestingly enough, um, I haven't read his later work on cosmology, although I've heard it's not particularly good. Um, my physicist brother-in-law says that at least um you know um you know, interesting enough fair enough uh but you know anarchy state and utopia i think was almost uh, in many cases really his most systematic uh book in the sense that you can say that there's a kind of a beginning middle end to it uh but even there as julian and as you said aaron uh there are big chunks of it you could kind of almost carve off uh, and even if you'd say uh, you know i don't buy into this argument here or i'm not buying into the whole uh presentation of the book you can still find a lot of value in things like the experience machine the Wilt Chamberlain thought experiment, uh, utility monster. I mean, Christ, I see videos with like hundreds of thousands of views about utility monster, right? All this kind of fun stuff. Uh, and yeah, to your point, Aaron, you know, I can imagine if you were in a class and you puts forward some of these ideas, you first kind of think like, what the world are you talking about? And you think, well, that's neat. Let's let's play around with that for a little while. So that's why I enjoy Nozick, uh, amongst other things. I want to start then with his his theory of rights because that is central to this book and one of the things that sets this book apart from other works of political philosophy at the time is just how strong and absolute and unyielding his theory of rights is and and basically the whole book is start with this strong and unyielding theory of rights and then see where it leads us. So what is what is his grounding for the kind of rights he sets out and I guess do we think do we think it works? Do we think he's he has justified the level of rights that he then assumes for the rest of the book? Actually, let me let me interject a little bit here because I, 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 a frequent criticism of anarchy state and utopia is that if you look at the first 
section, right? The anarchy section. One famous review called it libertarianism without foundations, because essentially he seems to be assuming a very strong set of kind of classic libertarian bucket of of individual rights. Um, and there's, I mean, obviously there, there are things he says. He makes a kind of quasi-Kantian uh, argument. Um, it just sketches what the basis for these kinds of rights might be. Um, but you don't, you don't really get a, a rigorous and systematic, um, you know, sort of justification of this detailed complement of rights. And I think what's important to recognize is that he's sort of doing different things in each of the three main sections of the book, right? There's sort of the anarchy section, the state section that's mostly a, a response to roles, um, and then sort of the utopia section, which is, um, sort of speculations about what a, a good libertarian society might might look like, and what he's doing in the anarchy section really is is addressing uh, a certain species of anarcho capitalist. So his sort of project in that first section, the anarchy section, uh, is not I'm going to convince you uh, of right uh, a libertarian moral philosophy. Um, he's saying okay to the to the anarcho capitalist out there, um, you assume this very strong set of rights. Um, and I'm going to try and make an argument for how you kind of back into a minimal state. Um, even if that's maybe not anyone's intention by a kind of invisible hand process um, and how without anyone doing anything sort of radically immoral, you end up with something that looks very much at least like a minimal state um, starting from a sort of stateless scenario with most people trying uh, to a reasonable degree to respect libertarian rights, but you still end up with something that looks like a state anyway. Um, so given sort of the project of that first section, um, he, he's kind of addressing people who already, or he's primarily addressing people who are already accepting, um, this sort of standard libertarian view of what kind of rights we have. Uh, and so the sketch there is, you know, not fully satisfying if what you were looking for is, um, a, um, an elaborate and, and very, uh, thoroughly worked out grounding for, uh, libertarian deontic rights, um, but that's sort of not what he's doing there. Um, that, that said, there is, there is a sort of sketch of what the argument might look like. Maybe Matthew, uh, wants to, wants to speak to that. No, I, I completely agree with that. And I will say that that is one of the most dissatisfying points in the book. And it's something I've criticized him before from my kind of left perspective, right? Which is, it starts out with this extraordinarily striking sentence, right? That everybody remembers, right? You know, individuals have rights and there are things that no one may do to them. You know, qualifier without violating their rights. And you think, okay, fair enough. Uh, and allegedly uh, one reviewer, uh, critical reviewer of the book, just kind of circled that sentence and said, why? Uh, and then put it away and said, you know, the whole rest of the book doesn't work uh, unless you can kind of establish this. Uh, and I think from an intellectual standpoint, there's a lot to this criticism. Right? You can't just assert something that important and kind of say, buy into it. And then the rest of my argument will work. Uh, However, I do think that there are ways of reconstructing his argument that could make it more powerful. And this is me being intellectually charitable, right? Um, so one of the ways that you can do it that, as Julian said, he seemed to flirt with was kind of taking the Lockean Kantian approach uh, that stressed the importance of individual autonomy uh, very, very strongly. Uh, and another approach that he took that he seemed more cautious of, but every now and then he seems to flirt with. Uh, is adopting a kind of Lockean uh, approach, uh, both to individual autonomy and to property rights. Uh, now, again, he's less comfortable with that, I'd say, than the Kantian bit, because he has this famous section where he actually mocks the labor theory of entitlement or the labor theory of value, saying, you know, 
people who believe that if I mix my labor with something, uh, it becomes mine are just like people who imagine that if I poured my can of tomato juice into the ocean, uh, suddenly, you know, I become Neptune, Lord of the Sea or whatever. Right? It's just a very kind of funny jab. But he says, you know, something like this is what we would have to start with uh, to get the theory of rights that we would need. Right now, I'm not very satisfied with that. And I don't imagine any reader of the book would be right. Uh, but there's kind of a negative uh, dimension to his defense of rights that I think is more compelling. And this is where you get the stuff about utility monsters and experience machines come in, uh, because beyond just his argument for the Minerka state, he does have some very compelling critiques of alternative moral conceptions that have their own attached sets of rights. Right. Uh, so you can think of the utilitarian conception of rights that was extremely popular at the time almost hegemonic, you could say, at the time when Nozick was writing this book. Uh, you know, he criticizes it uh, both with reference to the utility monster and also with reference to the utility machine, or sorry, uh, experience machine, by suggesting that what we really want isn't crude happiness, uh, but a kind of perfectionist self-creation is the way that I would express the point. Uh, that's what I take from the experience machine metaphor. Uh, and then, you know, I think that's a pretty compelling criticism, you know, but then I'm not a utilitarian, so I would think that, right? Uh, then he moves on to his criticism of Rawls's conception of rights, which he takes to offer another kind of Kantian flavored, but left Kantian flavored uh, approach to rights uh, and offers some important criticisms uh, there. Probably the most uh, significant one is what you find with the Will Chamberlain thought experiment, uh, which is kind of his answer to this original position reasoning of Rawls, I would argue. But we can get to that later on. Uh, so I agree, Julian, not fully satisfying. Unless you kind of already buy into this project, you're probably going to think like that famous reviewer, you know, why do these rights exist? Uh, but to be charitable, I think there are more arguments that he gives uh, or that you could reconstruct for his conception of rights than some of the most uncharitable uh, interpreters would allow. Let me ask then about the the argument against the anarchists um, or the, the argument that we can get to the minimal state from, from anarchism without – without moral wrongs that the anarchists would reasonably object to because i every time i've read this it feels to me like something of a sleight of hand to be maybe uncharitable but that his his argument is essentially people will essentially outsource the protection of of their rights and interests in you know, in an anarchic society, because I don't want to be forced to essentially engage in self-defense all the time. I might not be good at it, and it's costly and all that. So I'll hire essentially a security firm to protect me. And then he gives kind of a mechanisms for why the competing security firms, one will eventually win out, that there's just that there are there are kind of certain incentives at play in this market of security agencies that lead one to become dominant and and then his argument is we've got this dominant one but there are certain people in our society who are essentially refusing to join it they're not paying for its services they don't want to use it and those people represent a risk to the rest of us and that risk is great enough that in order to push back against it, we can essentially force them to join up with our security agency. And once that happens, we then have something that looks like this minimal state. That's a very you know sketchy overview of it. And my reaction to it has always been his his argument for this not violating rights is that yes, it's you can't you can't compel someone to buy something they don't want. Like that would be a violation. You can't like take their property from them to buy something they don't want. That would be a violation of rights. But if you're going to violate that right, um, 
what you need to do is compensate. Like when there's a rights violation, we need to compensate. So like, Matt, if I punch you in the nose, I now owe you some monetary amount equal to, you know, the the pain and suffering of being punched in the nose. And so with the these protection agencies, if we compel the independents, as they're called, the people who haven't joined up, to pay for protection or to abide by the the rules of these protective agencies, to essentially be subject to them, the way that we compensate them is by giving them the protection of these agencies. And and that's always seemed fishy to me. Like if I – let's say that Julian, you are ignorant of some important set of facts and we think that that ignorance is going to – because you didn't read – you didn't buy and read these books that would have told you the truth. And and we think that that ignorance might possibly inflict harm upon the rest of us because you might do something out of that ignorance. And so what we want to compel you to read the books – so that you're no longer ignorant and no longer a risk um, and compelling you to take time to read the books is the same as Nozick's community radio station example of compelling you to part- – like we can't compel you to do this thing. Um, that's a rights violation. But we're going to do it anyway and the way we're going to compensate you is by basically giving you the books for free. Like that doesn't seem like that argument works but it feels like his argument from the protective agency to the minimal state is analogous. Am I missing – a big portion of this? So I don't think his argument quite works all the way. Um, that is to say, if, if we're, if we're going to consider it, and I think most people would uh, sort of definitive feature or constituent feature of a minimal state that it taxes everyone under its jurisdiction to support, uh, support its operations. I don't think he's gotten you to an argument for being able to tax the, what he calls the holdouts. That is the people who don't want to be, associated with the dominant protection agency or or protection agency federation, which is one of the outcomes he sketches as possible, um, but who just want to provide self-help, self-defense or, or uh, self-defense through some smaller association. Um, I, I don't think it works to the point of, and now we've justified taxation, but I do think it kind of halfway works. Um, and I think it, in the following sense, I think this actually, he draws attention to, uh, what I think is sort of an under-theorized, at least for, for libertarians, issue in uh, in rights theory, right, which is there are kind of epistemic problems with libertarian rights. I think libertarians often talk about rights as though um, it's always a, you know, a relatively clear-cut case. I mean, you might have, you have to have to, you know, a detective who can figure out who did the murder or whatever, but that, um, but that you know, there, there's not really such a thing as kind of good faith differences over whether rights have been violated. Uh, and if we think about the kind of cases that actually occupy, you know, most of the time in our courts, um, right, there are, of course, all sorts of uh, uh, cases like that where um, it's sort of a hard question, um, you know, whether a right has been violated uh, and, and what kind of compensation is due uh, in particular. And uh, and in particular, also when the person enforcing or adjudicating uh, a finding is not one of the people directly involved. Um, so, you know, I may have direct knowledge of whether I injured you, uh, uh, but, you know, the agencies that we're contracting with to, to vindicate our rights don't necessarily have full knowledge of what, uh, of what occurred. Um, and uh, so, you know, 
I think he's pointing out right a, a real issue uh, again, assuming a society where people mostly kind of agree on the basics of what libertarian rights look like, and most people most of the time are trying to adhere to those uh, those rules and principles. Um, you're still going to have conflicts where, uh, you know, well, was I injured through your culpable negligence, or was it kind of an act of God that you're not responsible for? Um, if you there's information you didn't provide me when I brought a product, was that fraud that you're liable for, or you know, should it have been kind of caveat emptor? Um, uh, and and then also, of course, all right, to the extent that I may have injured you in some way, what is the appropriate compensation? Can you take, you know, my entire income or is there some smaller amount um, that that is that's more appropriate given my contribution to the harm? Um, right. So these are questions that, that need to be resolved. And so the question is, all right, if you've contracted with this third party entity for so self-defense rights, um are they, given their sort of epistemic position, um, if someone says, I, you know, think this person's violated my rights, I'm going to force him to give up some property to compensate me. Um, are they entitled, uh, given their sort of epistemic position, to defend me until they have been satisfied that you have a good claim? Um, right. And, OK, look, you can't just take his stuff because you say he harmed you. Um, we have an adjudication procedure. And so we're not going to allow you to just take Julian's stuff uh, in, in compensation for the harm you say you suffered um, until we are satisfied that that's an appropriate level of compensation that you're due or that he really did harm you in the way that you claim. Uh, and until we're satisfied by our adjudication procedure, um, we're going to treat your attempt to recover what you call compensation as uh, as an assault against which we're going to defend our client. Um, and I think that's a fairly compelling argument, right? That, that uh, everyone you know, mostly acting to try and adhere to uh, some version of a, a libertarian portfolio of rights um, could act in this way, justifiably given their knowledge. Um, and so what you would, I think, have is a situation where as a practical matter, um, this would, through the process, I think, as a generate within each geographical region, either a dominant protection agency, that is the one that is able to effectively enforce um, right. No self-help, self-defense or compensation will be extracted until our adjudication procedure has determined that, yes, you are due that compensation or that punishment is appropriate. Um, you're either going to have one such dominant agency or if you have several agencies that sort of equal power and ability to enforce uh, their preferred procedure, um, that they would come to some kind of accord and you would have something like a kind of federated system where there's a kind of a uh, higher level kind of court of appeals to adjudicate differences between the clients of uh, these different agencies. Um, I think that part of the argument is fairly compelling. I don't think he gets you to, uh, and and here's why you can tax the holdouts to support this system on his own principles. But I do think he gets you to um, um, a kind of look under the best realistic set of assumptions. Right. Again, where almost everyone agrees on the substantive morality um, and most people most of the time are trying to do the right thing. Um, nevertheless, what you end up with is um, either one dominant institution or a small number of dominant institutions in a kind of federated accord um, that in effect control the legal system or, or, or determine um, what punishments and what 
what forms of compensation are actually enforceable and are actually extracted. Um, and, you know, frankly, I think that that may be in a sense, right, sort of good enough for our purposes, which is to say if if as an answer to the sort of radical proposition that, well, governments are all immoral and we should, should do away them and re- return to sort of a state of nature, if you have a pretty convincing argument that, look, um, even if we did that, we are all but certain, even under the most optimistic assumptions, to end up back with something that looks very much like a state. Um, in a sense, right? Is it is is it worth doing to sort of burn everything down and 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 try and start again, um, or does it make more sense to try and and uh, make those structures more uh, more perfectly reflect what we think is the correct conception of justice? Um, and I think that you know that that's a, a valuable result, even if it doesn't doesn't get quite quite as far as he might like. Yeah, I, I was going to say just as a follow up. This is my least favorite section uh, of the book. Uh, I've never had a great deal of time wearing for it. And I think part of that is also because since I'm not a libertarian, uh, some of this stuff is kind of insider baseball. You know what I mean? I imagine it's very interesting to people who, you know, are you know, following, uh, you know, Ludwig von Mises and F.A. Hayek and the debates and differences between them. Uh, to me, you know, I generally just don't have a lot of time for speculative histories wholesale. Uh, and that's true whether they're Rousseauian histories or Nozickian histories, right? Saying that, I do think it is an interesting intellectual exercise. Nothing Nozick uh, produced was ever valueless. Uh, and there are some intuitions that come from this uh, that are worth analyzing and criticizing, right? Uh, so one of the things that I would criticize uh, this speculative history for is that point about independence that Aaron brought up, right? Because he does really struggle with this. Uh, and some people like Ian Shapiro say, well, like, well, he has to because they're the last holdouts to the creation of the state that he wants. Um, but they're a pretty significant holdout. How do you fold them in? Uh, and he does just kind of have these ad hoc uh, comments like, well, we can compensate them in some way, shape or form. Uh, and we'll move on from there. I think this is actually a more significant problem for him than even he is willing to acknowledge, in part because you might be the kind of individual who adopts the kind of mantra of New Hampshire and says, you know, live free or die, right? Takes an ultra deontic approach to your rights. You know, I'm not willing to trade them off for anything, right? Which he kind of implies. Uh, and then it seems very hard to understand how it is that you could compensate them for losing uh, that deontic sense of their rights uh, without engaging in kinds of utilitarian cost-benefit calculations uh, of the sort that he precludes from their very beginning by saying, yeah, we're going to take away, you know, your right to do absolutely whatever you want, but we'll attach a monetary value to it. This is how much happiness you got from it. Here you go, right? Now, that's a technical problem, but it can become a bigger technical problem if you think about issues like, say, COVID right now, right, where we might say, well, if you're not going to get a vaccine, then there's going to be a cost associated with that, right? We're going to penalize you for not abridging uh, your bodily autonomy in this way for the benefit of the community or whatever, right? Um, the second kind of problem that I have with this uh, does relate back to its status as a speculative history. Uh, and I think he himself is cognizant of this because he characterizes his approach to mm, property rights uh, as historical rather than patterned one. Right. You know, to a certain extent, uh, if the procedural history of transactions uh, between property owners is just, then we can say that the outcome is just. But then, of course, later on in the book, he says that isn't the case. And this is what we were talking about before we got on the show, right? It's very clear that every state that's been existent thus far 
falls very well short uh, of the kind of speculative history that I traced out here. And in fact, many of them are extremely exploitative, domineering, engaged in imperialism, colonialism, racism, slavery, you name it, right? Uh, so that raises very serious questions about how it is that we would need to redistribute wealth in a certain way to compensate people for those past injustices, which again, he talks about quite admirably in the middle of the book in that famous footnote that maybe we'll talk about later on. Uh, and then the third problem that I have with this uh, is more kind of classically Marxist difficulty, uh, which is that I can appreciate the fact that he recognizes and acknowledges the need for the minimal state uh, in order to protect rights to individual autonomy and property. Uh, but I don't think he ever appreciates the force of the objection that it's very hard to conceive of how this could operate uh, without a high degree of coercion being present uh, in people's lives just ubiquitously, right? Since, of course... Property, uh, and this is where I disagree with Nozick, isn't a natural entity. Uh, it's a legal conception that emerges within the state apparatus, and it has to be backed up by the force of law and ultimately the force of coercion, right? Uh, and so the kind of way that I would spin this uh, is moving away from Marx to Rawls, that if we're going to have a system that's going to be predicated on a certain degree of coercion, no matter what, uh, we should ask ourselves not what system um, doesn't entail coercion or entails the minimal coercion, but what system would people uh, agree to under conditions of impartiality that would seem to work to the benefit of uh, everyone uh, understood as self-interested uh, and moral, self-interested moral equals? Well, yes, there's a lot in there uh, to unpack. Uh, I guess I'll just say, I mean, coercion is one of those tricky uh, words because it's, it's, it's very easy to sort of slide between a kind of moralized and a, a purely descriptive uh, senses of coercion, right? In, in, a, in a purely descriptive sense, um, right. Any any set of rights is enforced coercively. So if you, you know, I don't know, want to have sex with me without consent and I right, uh, I or my my designated agents will um, will use coercion to prevent you from um, from doing that. Um, but. In the sort of the normative sense, um, right, we would we would tend to say that right, we would we would not tend to describe that defensive act as coercion. So. um uh, uh, or you know, we wouldn't say, "Oh, you're coercively preventing me from exercising my liberty." You're saying, "Well, you're using coercion to 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 vindicate your own liberty." Um, and I think you know a similar thing could be said about property. Right? The question is, you know, do you have uh, a justification for uh, for regarding this set of holdings as justified? Whatever the just set of holdings is, um, coercion will probably be necessary to prevent people from taking more than their due uh, or more, more resources than, than um, they are, uh, you know, justifiably entitled to. Um, so that, right. In, that in some sense, in, in a purely descriptive sense, right. That makes property coercion, but only coercive, but only really in the sense that any system of rights is coercive in the sense that it says there are things you may not do. And if you try to do them, someone will, Right, physically prevent you from doing that. Yeah, I absolutely agree, right? And I mean, this is where we can get it. I don't know if everybody wants to get into the real nitty-gritty of the Rawls-Nozick debate because that's really insider baseball. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of left Rawlsian, right? So I tend to think that his approach to this is better than Nozick's. We don't need to get into it. Uh, but, you know, the kind of core intuition uh, that I put forward is if you're going to accept that any conception of rights, including property rights, is going to be backed by a certain level of coercion, uh, it seems inescapable that there is a kind of pattern dimension uh, to justice, uh, since 
inevitably a certain kind of pattern is going to emerge if you try to constrain it, uh, constrain human action in that kind of way, right? Uh, and given that, my argument would be we shouldn't necessarily ask ourselves just what the freest kind of society would be, uh, but what kind of society, again, self-interested moral equals would agree to under fair conditions uh, of deliberation. And that's, I think, where the real nuts and bolts uh, difference between Rawlsians and Nozickians comes in. Uh, we tend to think that there are different kinds of principles that people would want to prioritize in addition to liberty. Uh, the difference principle, for example, right? Uh, and, you know, we can mince the arguments for that back and forth as long as you want. Uh, but, you know, I think that's really where the core divide comes in. I mean, I should say I, I am I am actually a kind of Rawlsian libertarian myself. Uh, I, I note that in a late, late Rawlsian, not not theory of justice Rawlsian, uh, I would note that in political liberalism, uh, Rawls sort of has to uh, sort of rig um, the, the, the structure to some extent to exclude libertarian conceptions of justice, because the way the sort of the the, the system he builds in political liberalism is this rather complicated structure for determining just political principles and um, the sort of the, the original position he lays out in theory of justice becomes one kind of module you can plug into this framework um, and generate um, essentially liberal societies that, that he thinks comports with uh, uh, an appropriate structure for generating um, political regimes. Um, and the way it's sort of set up, I think it's very congenial to um, a fairly thin state, right? The, the, the motivating force for roles in, in political liberalism is to generate an ideal of the state that is respects diverse conceptions of the good. And so you can, you, you know, can you have a state that does not embed any controversial metaphysical or theological um, ideas about the good uh, and therefore respects a diverse and pluralistic citizenry um, who have deep, uh, deep differences on these issues, um, and you know, set up that way, which is how Rawls sets it up. Um, I think very naturally, one is inclined to say, well, then a, a fairly minimal state, um, a fairly thin state um, that tries to give kind of the maximal uh, ambit for for individual autonomy is is where you would be driven by that, because the more the state does, the more it will end up uh, taking stances on. Uh, on these kind of contentious conceptions of the good that the citizens don't necessarily share. Uh, and so Rawls fairly cursorily uh, kind of rules out libertarian conceptions of justice um, from, from sort of candidates to be the module that plugs into this process of generating just political principles uh, on the grounds that they don't combine, I don't remember what he said, combine the, 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 the priority of liberty and, something else in the right way. Uh, but it's just, it's an incredibly brief, um, an incredibly brief sort of dismissal. Um, that's not all that well argued. I think if you, if you don't find that dismissal convincing, um, uh, late roles gives you uh, a pretty good sort of superstructure for, for libertarian political philosophy, but I am now off on a, uh, a serious tangent. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I mean, I have to say that uh, one of the interesting things and dissatisfying things about Rawls is that he, generally speaking, is uh, seemed to have moved leftward uh, over the course of his long career, right? You know, from a kind of Keynesian welfareism to, you know, property-owning democracy, liberal socialism. Um, and I think that in his response uh, to both libertarian and conservative thinkers, he does tend to be kind of cursorily uh, dismissive, right? Just, I don't really have time for that. 
Uh, and you don't see that kind of response uh, in uh, the attention I'll pay, for instance, to left-wing critics of his work, right? People like Jay Cohen, uh, feminist critics, multicultural critics, uh, left communitarians like Michael Sandel, right? He tends to take those pretty seriously uh, and respond to them programmatically. But th- that's another thing there. Like, I mean, uh, what I was interested in kind of discussing, um, since we are talking about Rawls, just to move it back to Nozick, are the two major objections uh, that he makes to his work uh, via these infamous thought experiments. Because uh, I think that's where a lot of the intellectual action is in Nozick's book. Uh, and one of his thought experiments, probably his most famous writing uh, wholesale, is this Wilt Chamberlain thought experiment, right? Where I even find it pretty compelling, right? You know, he says, look, fine, let's imagine we give the egalitarians what they want, right? Uh, we redistribute resources, good, whatever you want to call it, money, you know, uh, in a fully egalitarian sense. Uh, well, what's going to happen, right? Uh, you're going to have this guy, Will Chamberlain. He's going to be talented at basketball. He's going to come along and say, if you want me to play basketball, you know, you put a quarter in this box uh, and I'll happily go out and do that. Over time, he becomes rich. Is there anything really wrong with that? Uh, and, you know, it has this kind of compelling simplicity to it. Uh, but you can also look at real world parallels where some of the things did occur. Uh, for instance, Poland around 1989, 1991, whenever it was, right, where the state just redistributed chits uh, to people and state industries and said, let the market have at it. Uh, and within a couple of weeks, you saw radical forms of inequality emerge. But you can't really say that anyone was discriminated against because everyone started off with the same amount of money, kind of like in a game of Monopoly or whatever. The other famous thought experiment that he gives that's less discussed, but I think is also interesting. Uh, if any of you guys have seen The Incredibles, you know, the Pixar movie, you know, this really manifested the spirit, I think, quite nicely. Uh, it's this ugly man thought experiment uh, where he says, well, let's imagine that Rawls is right. And we say that people who have been discriminated against or who suffer for morally arbitrary reasons uh, are entitled to some kind of compensation right, by the state. Imagine there was this guy who was born supremely ugly. He's not able to get a date. It's a very nosic thought experiment because he was so handsome, right? You know, probably reflected on this a little bit himself. You know, like those poor suckers right out there. Yeah, the, you know. Work to work to get laid, but neither here nor there. You know, he says, you know, so there's this guy, he's ugly, he's not able to get a date. Would he be entitled to go to the state and say, I am the least well off in these kind of circumstances? You need to do something to fix that, either by giving me cosmetic surgery to make me more happy, oh, sorry, more handsome, uh, or more darkly, by making everyone else less attractive uh, so that I'm better able to compete on the dating market. Um, and he gives a few other examples in this mode. Uh, but there is a kind of nice critique of resentiment implicit within that, uh, and also a kind of criticism of how far an egalitarian is really willing to go, uh, particularly when it comes to our interpersonal relationships that we don't normally associate with politics, in demanding egalitarian reforms. Uh, And I'm not always sure that left-wing thinkers have thought through how far they are willing to go with it, and whether they'd be willing to go all to all the dark places that Nozick sometimes worries that they might go. So those are, I think, his two kind of main criticisms of Rawls that I was hoping we could discuss, or the main thought experiments he uses to criticize these Marlsian notions. But I'm not sure what you had thought, uh, Aaron or Julian. I was actually going to ask you specifically, Matt, about as because you're coming from the this much more left perspective than Julian and I, um, about the Wilt Chamberlain thought experiment and and whether because a lot of I mean a lot of people. Well, a lot of libertarian people find it pretty compelling, but that's not necessarily an indicator that it's, you know, that it actually works so much as it's just kind of validates 
um, that it's it's apologetics as opposed to an argument. Uh, so coming from a left, more socialist direction, do you do you think that the conclusion that we should draw from it, which is Wilt Chamberlain's greater wealth at the end of this process of buying tickets, um, is is legitimate. There's not no no rights have been violated. There's no it would be wrong to redistribute it. Do you think that that works, or do you think that there's a mistake somewhere along the line in that argument? I think that there is a mistake, and it's a pretty big mistake. But I want to reemphasize that I do think the thought experiment uh, isn't just compelling uh, and it's kind of analytical simplicity and power, but also quite generous, right? Uh, in a way that you don't normally see people be uh, when it comes to crossing the political aisle. Uh, because one of the things that Nozick does that makes this effective is by saying. I'm essentially willing to like offer you the whole game. Here you go. You know, you get the equality that you want, right? It's done. You know, we redistribute wealth like it's manna from heaven. Everyone who starts off with whatever it is, it's 1970, you know, $10,000 in their bank account and, you know, a modest house. Let's roll forward from there. Okay. Uh, and then these implications are, sorry, then these kind of scenarios play themselves out uh, and we get inequality. What's wrong with that? Right. Uh, and my argument would be that, Socialists have never actually, most socialists, I should say, there probably is someone out there online, right? Don't really have problems with uh, the accumulation of various forms of what's sometimes called personal uh, wealth, right? Uh, the issue that many socialists following Marx have a problem with uh, is private ownership of the means of production and the way that's associated with various forms of domination at the state level, right? So I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with wealth being a little bit better off than someone else uh, if it just meant that he was going to get a nice swimming pool and, you know, go on weekly trips to the Caribbean or whatever it happens to be, right? I would have a problem if Wilt bought a factory, uh, went to his workers and said, times are tough. Uh, either you're going to have to take a big fat pay raise uh, and agree not to unionize, uh, or I'm going to have to lay all of you off. Then they strike and he goes to whatever, the mayor of Cincinnati and says, uh, I can't get my workers into control. Send the police in uh, because, you know, I made a big fat campaign donation to you. Uh, so, you know, it's now time to pay up. Those are the kind of scenarios that worry me. And I should say those are the kinds of things that I think most intelligent socialist commentators have criticized uh, when it comes to, for instance, American oligarchy, plutocracy. You know, you pick your derogatory term, right? Uh, now, how to go about... So the kind of theoretical intuition that comes from this is that I think Rosick is wrong, uh, that as long as you follow these kinds of procedures in transaction or procedures in transition... The outcomes are always invariably just, no matter what happens. Because if Wilt just takes this money and again uses it for his protocol gratification, that's fine. If he takes it and uses it to accumulate vast reserves of power that he can use to dominate other people, including by turning to the state to facilitate his domination, there's a big problem there, right? Uh, and I think you know a lot of socialists have problems with some of these kind of homey uh, libertarian stories. Uh, you know, that kind of dissociate from some of the nastier sides of capitalism. Uh, I don't know if any of you watch PragerU as religiously as I do, uh, but one of the videos where Prager makes a defense of capitalism is he has this nice little flower company and he's like, why would the state come in and they'll interfere with, you know, mom and pop stores where they're just trying to sell flowers by taxing and spending them into oblivion? You know, my kind of response to that is, you know, did Marx actually spend an awful lot of time talking about how mom and pop flower stores are going to be the death of us? I don't think so, right? Uh, and so um, how you can go about settling this, again, uh, I have my own theories about this. I don't think we necessarily want to go into them. Uh, but I'm very, very suspicious of this argument that as long as you follow these procedures, any outcome that emerges at the end uh, is just. 
I'm a materialist enough to say that sometimes you might follow these procedures uh, and no one initially uh, is doing anything wrong, but the outcome can still be very, very bad. And we need to be sensitive to that. Um, so thank you. I think, I think the, the, the Wilt Chamberlain thought experiment, and I guess, you know, we, we probably just should say for the, for the benefit of, of uh, listeners who were you know, not alive in the 1970s, right? Um, Wilt Chamberlain was a, a professional basketball player who, at the time Nozick was writing, uh, was, I think, the highest paid athlete in the country. And so the idea that, you know, a man would make this, I don't remember what it was, but it was at the time, you know, by modern standards, maybe not, but uh, at the time, the sort of exorbitant salary uh, that Chamberlain was being paid. Um, and, uh, you know, the kind of popular reaction at the time was, wow, it's crazy that, you know, any one person could make such a such a, uh, an outrageous amount of money just for, for you know, for playing basketball. Um, uh, and so that's, that's sort of the example he picked as because people think of this as, well, it's outrageous that someone should be so wealthy just for playing basketball. Um, and, you know, the fourth of the experiment is, look, stipulate whatever pattern of holdings you think is appropriate. Um, and I'm going to tell you a plausible story about how you go from a by stipulation, right, your version of distributive justice through a series of voluntary consensual transactions to significant inequality. Um, and uh, I think this is sometimes misread because the section is titled How Liberty Upsets Patterns as like an argument that the state has to be kind of constantly intervening to to reset things to uh, to perfect equality, which is not really Nozick's point. Um, he understands that's not how like actual states operate, but rather that if you have a theory of distributive justice on which you can go from a by stipulation just distribution to an unjust distribution only by means of people voluntarily uh, transferring the holdings that on your theory are, are, are theirs to dispose of um, something's got to be wrong with that, with that vision. Um, right. If, um, if our holdings are ours for anything, they're, for, they're you know, they're, if they're justly ours, they're justly ours uh, to dispose of. Um, I think there's force to that. Uh, I, I don't know if it, it completely works for a, a, a couple of reasons. Um, one is that I think, you know, it, it does sort of assume, well, I'm mean, right. So the assumption is, um, right, the principles of justice need to be such that um, you can't get from, uh, right, a, a, a just situation to an unjust situation um, without anyone doing anything wrong. Uh, and I think that's probably not right. Um, or at least not doing anything wrong in let, without embedding some kind of structural condition into your principles, right? The, the, the correct principles of justice have to be sort of right, reducible to individual transaction rules. Uh, and I'm, incl I'm inclined to agree that that's, that's not actually that persuasive. I think of um, what Derek Parfit calls harmless torturer cases, um, right? Derek Parfit imagines a scenario where um, you have a thousand torturers and a thousand victims. Oh no, everyone is turning the, the dial on a, a torture device that sends electricity uh, into each person. Everyone is obviously acting very wrongly. And then imagines a different scenario where um, each torturer is turning the dial and it's sending an imperceptibly tiny quantity of electricity into the uh, the machines connected to each of the thousand victims. And in the aggregate, it inflicts agony on them. Um, but you could say of each torturer, it would make no perceptible difference to anyone if that particular person were not doing what they're doing. So that particular person, um, right, is, is not inflicting any perceptible harm on anyone. Um, you could, right, come up with less fanciful examples like, 
uh, emissions, right? It might be the case that um, uh, in order to produce something either for, you know, local consumption or just even for my home, uh, I burn something that emits gases into the atmosphere. Uh, it might well be that that uh, there is no discernible effect of me doing this or even many dozens of people doing this, but if a large enough population of people are doing this, it creates smog or has other uh, deleterious environmental consequences. And so it might be the case that um, there are harms that arise, um, not really through what any of us are individually doing. It might not make any difference if I stopped burning, whatever. Um, but the aggregate consequence of everyone doing these things, uh, these individually harmless actions, is harmful in the aggregate. Um, so I think you could make a kind of a, a parallel argument. Look, the, the principles of justice do not need to be such that um, right, they're, they're sort of fully analyzable without structural considerations or aggregate consequences um, being taken into effect. So I think the, you know, the emissions case is an example where, um, right, large numbers of people doing individually harmless things, things that in isolation you would say this is something that this person has uh, a right to do, um, may nevertheless be sort of subject to uh, regulation or restriction because of uh, the serious aggregate harms that eventuate if everyone uh, acts in that way. Um, and I think, you know, someone on the left could make, uh, a, you know, and then we could get into, right, kind of empirical questions of how true this is uh, and what the other consequences of, of, of redistribution are. Um, but I think at a, at a sort of formal level it is a, a fair objection to say, um, well, look, there are harms of extreme inequality um, that are not reducible to the justice of the individual transfer. Um, and indeed, there's there's not really any obligation on us to think of the share rights that people have uh, in the endowments they have under our just distribution as right unrestricted rights, including rights to transfer um, arbitrarily. Um, right? If we see, for example, inequality that leads to certain forms of domination as uh, a harm, we might say, well, your right does not include the right to um, you know, put someone else in a position to dominate people, let's say. I'm not saying this is right a view I adhere to. I'm just saying um, I can think of coherent views of principles of justice uh, uh, that, that don't necessarily fall prey to Nozick's objection. So, you know, does this one thought experiment kind of on its own work to sort of demolish uh, uh, left views? No, I think it's a, a powerful and useful thought experiment. Um, to which there are good answers. And so it's a good sort of move in the conversation. It's not a, it's not a knockdown shut up. Yeah, no, I, I would absolutely agree. Right. Uh, and again, I just wanted to say two points to this. Uh, one is I really appreciate you bringing up the environmental example, because that was the other one I thought of, but it's less classically socialistic. Right. Uh, but I think you could say similar things about uh, aggregations of power, right? Because, you know, there is this kind of nasty habit on the part of some on the socialist left to assume that capitalists are bad people, right. Uh, conniving, you know, evil stealing power and privileges from themselves. Right. But you never find an intelligent person like Marx make an argument like that. Right. Uh, even though sometimes his rhetoric can be a little purple. Right. The argument is again, that aggregations of power were emerged historically over time. Uh, sometimes the people in positions of power might actually be morally benign or morally beneficent. Uh, but the problem isn't necessarily with their individual characteristics. Uh, it's with the structures and uh, histories that enabled uh, these systems of domination to emerge in the first place, right? So you can make a similar kind of story about that as you could to the environmental point, right? Uh, and the second thing that I want to bring up that I think is really crucial here is that when I see this thought experiment kind of used crudely, uh, especially on the online circles, as a way to kind of hammer uh, redistributive 
approaches to justice. It's worth noting again that Nozick himself never intended it to be used to that effect, right? Uh, because one of the things that's usually ignored uh, when it comes to this thought experiment is precisely the point that Julian uh, made, which is that he begins by saying, look, let's just assume uh, for the purposes of this thought experiment that we have a pattern conception of justice that's implemented, uh, whatever one that you prefer, uh, strict egalitarianism, for example. Uh, well, then we have to accept that if we are going to allow people to engage in free exchanges, uh, liberty is going to disrupt patterns, is this famous expression, right? Uh, so then are you really willing to actually reimpose a kind of pattern, uh, whatever that happens to be, it doesn't have to be strict equality, but some kind of pattern uh, by interfering uh, with the free transactions of these individuals? And I think it's a pretty compelling argument, uh, but applied to the modern world, uh, we have to recognize, of course, that we've never had a society uh, where there's been a pattern system of justice uh, that's been present uh, from the beginning uh, that could have allow us to engage in, to use Julian's term, this kind of zero, zero reasoning uh, about why it is that we should respect liberty. Uh, it's very clear that the society we live in right now is riven uh, with various forms of injustices, not just inequality, but justices stemming from long histories of racial domination, long histories of imperial domination. Uh, and those of himself was sensitive to that by saying, and he consistently would say things like, you know, we're a long way from this Wilt Chamberlain universe. Uh, and we have a lot to do before we could even talk about these kind of scenarios playing themselves out realistically. And I'm not sure that uh, some of his less sophisticated fans, especially online, uh, really appreciate that. This seems like in our in our final some odd minutes, uh, a way to turn to the last section of the book, his framework of utopias or his utopia of utopias, because to your first point Matt, about aggregations of power and how aggregations of power that lead to domination can come about through, you know, through individually chosen and rights respecting and, you know, non like and suppose like just on the individual level means his his answer seems to be something like right of exit is in his in the utopia of utopias which is the idea that the the best society is not one that picks a single vision to go back to your rand critique um that picks a single vision of how people ought to live but instead is one where groups of people can get together and say this is the way we want to live together and if that's communal living on a kibbutz or it is radical and cap you know, market-driven everything, we can do that and we can live comfortably together. And then if if for whatever reason I have picked the kibbutz and a year in, I'm like, this is totally not the place for me. I can just up and move to the utopia next door, which might be a better fit. Or we could be watching what the utopia next door is up to and say, hey, they've got some they've got some pretty cool ideas that they've been experimenting with. Let's try some of those here. But it's all predicated on the ability to move between them and each utopia essentially respecting the right of the other the, the members of the other utopias to do their own thing which is an awfully i mean it's an awfully optimistic view it's really it's a hopeful view it seems like if it worked it would be it would be pretty great um i'm on the the like on the ground practicality of it i'm more skeptical of i think one of the things that when he talks about you know like we can compensate people for kind of harms and like worries um a lot of 
a lot of what we see right now in, say, like the rise of populism and a lot of really right wing reactionary politics is basically a notion that like it's not enough that people are leaving me alone. It's that if they're doing things over there that I don't like, whether that's embracing cultures I don't like or embracing behaviors I don't like or letting in people who change the way that I've imagined this country to be, that that is the kind of harm that the state should get involved in. And I mean, Nose would reject that, but um, but it seems to be a potential like real world problem for a utopia of utopias is that people tend to think that a lot of utopia is that everyone else is following along with my preferences too. Uh, but is it broadly, is this a, is this a compelling vision? Do we do we think that the the notion that people can voluntarily do all sorts of strange things as long as they can walk away if they don't like it works to solve a lot of these problems? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a compelling vision, right? I mean, I would label myself a social libertarian, right? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that what anyone does with their spare time uh, is necessarily to my taste, but I would respect the right to do so, right? Uh, I think. The big difference on my end uh, would come from whether or not civil, civil or sorry, social libertarianism requires uh, a kind of libertarian uh, attachment to property rights, uh, and this is where the real mint uh, meat, mince meat uh, of the debate would come in, right? Because I would argue uh, first off that Nozick's utopia is vulnerable to the earlier objection I made, right? Which is that in a context where you allow the kind of unlimited um, increase in inequality uh, that his system would allow, you're going to see invariable aggregations of power that will allow people to impose uh, their view of the good life uh, upon others, right? And I don't think that's just a hypothetical scenario. I think you can see something very similar to that happening with the GOP, for example, uh, right now in the United States. So I'm historically concerned uh, about that. The second thing that I would argue is that I'm sympathetic to his social libertarianism, uh, but I would think that the better way to achieve that uh, would be recognizing that in order for people to engage in the kind of lives of expressive individuality uh, that this viewpoint endorses, uh, they would require a certain level uh, of human capabilities, to use sense term, uh, in order to pursue that meaningfully. Uh, and that requires us to provide them with things like education, healthcare, uh, at the very least, you know, housing uh, and um, various other goods. Uh, so that way, when they decide what vision of the good life might happen to be appealing to them at any given time, uh, they are well resourced to pursue that uh, in a substantial way, uh, and this is a point that kind of left Aristotelians uh, who are influenced by Rawls, like Sen and Nussbaum, make. Uh, and it's not necessarily something that you see a lot of attention to, um, a lot of attention paid to uh, in the book. So those are two objections I would make uh, to his utopian ideal. Again, with the broad caveat that as long as we were able to extricate uh, this fixation on property rights from it. Uh, I would be very attracted to large swaths of that vision. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure how extricable it is from some some conception of property rights, because the question, of course, is, well, you know, what what is the scope within which each of the uh, the various sort of intentional communities Nozick imagines arising um, can can sort of exercise their vision? Um, so if you have a, I don't know, a monastic order uh, that wants to say, well, everyone who's a member of this community has to be you know, live simply and, and I don't know, forsake uh, pork on Friday and, and wear sackcloth, whatever, you know, the, their vision is, um, you know, what are, what are the boundaries within which they can say that these are the rules? Um, and also, I mean, I think he's clearly also imagining, right, not purely a social 
libertarianism, but the idea of different localized economic arrangements. So if you're saying, look, if you want to have a commune where uh, property is held in common and where um, the uh, uh, businesses that operate are uh, are worker-owned collectives, um, well, right, I mean, you're, you're in a sense, right, you do have an idea here that there are regions within which, all right, the, you know, the, the business is going to be owned by the, uh, the employees, um, right? These are, these are all in a sense, right? Structures that, that presume, uh, property rights as the institution that's going to, that's going to, um, limb the bounds of the communities within which people can move. Um, so I think, I think to some extent, this is, this is, uh, a vision that, that's working with this idea of property rights fairly, uh, fairly tightly. Um, there are a couple, I mean, there are a couple obvious issues, right? One is, um, he's tacitly sort of assuming that these are all relatively small communities um, for exit to be a reasonable option. Otherwise, right, you, you the larger they get, the closer you are to just de facto states with, with different rules. Um, and there's some point at which, right, the cost of, well, you can move um, is, you know, well, it's the same as the cost it is now. Well, you could always move somewhere else with a government that's more uh, more congenial to you, uh, rather than complaining that the current one is violating your rights. Um, also, right, sort of conspicuously, there is the issue of children, um, right? So if you are uh, right, born and raised between uh, within a particular community, um, which which indeed may not allow you, uh, let's say it's a community that says you don't have any individual holdings, everything is sort of communally owned, Um well, people raised in those communities may have quite limited options in terms of of, of exiting to elsewhere. Um, so, um, you, you'd like to hear a little bit more about how, uh, and this is, I think, a, a, a fair uh, a fair objection against a lot of political philosophy, which is um, a lot of political philosophy tends not to deal super well with the fact that we are, uh, you know, all of us kind of come into the world as as uh, Muling irrational little meat bags that need to be fed and cared for, and um, don't have uh, a whole lot of, of rational autonomy, um, and yet who, uh, nevertheless, we think uh, you know are, are owed uh, certain kinds of moral treatment. Um, so those are issues. But, you know, it's worth saying this is this is the title of this section is a framework for utopia. It is by by far the shortest section of the book. Um, there's a unsurprisingly given given the the relative brevity a lot of issues you could raise with it um nevertheless i think the um the 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 general picture is extremely appealing and maybe more so in the 21st century than than at the time nozick wrote when um at least in, in the online context we have um a lot of latitude for forming uh, uh intentional communities uh in in sort of virtual space that are not tied to the idea of having to physically uh, relocate yourself as you transition between communities. Um, and which I think, you know, maybe provide uh, an answer to folks on, on left and right who uh, want to insist that there needs to be some uh, unified set of principles that govern every online space that reaches a certain size. If I could just actually um, sharpen your point about children, which I think is actually a very good one, right? Uh, these aren't just hypothetical scenarios either. Uh, something very similar to this came up in 1972 uh, in a case called Wisconsin versus Yoder, uh, where the Am- uh, where an Amish individual claimed uh, that he wanted to opt his children out of the requirement uh, imposed by the state uh, that people be educated to around grade 12, uh, because he said that 
this violated uh, both his religious rights uh, and his belief that his children uh, would be kind of polluted uh, by too much exposure to secular society. Uh, and there were intense debates about this, uh, not because anybody's worried that the Amish are going to take over you know, the United States at some point and impose their view on everyone. Uh, but the argument was, well, you know, what about the children? Uh, they may believe right now uh, that dad knows best and that they only want to get a grade eight education and then return to the farm. Uh, but when they hit 25 or 30, they might resent the fact uh, that he had the right uh, to make this kind of decision on their behalf uh, and for no one to be there to protect them. Right. So I think that it's a serious issue that we need to deliberate upon. And that really it only comes to the fore when we think of concrete examples. Right. Like so much else in political philosophy. Uh, but to your kind of point about property, I agree that it is pretty essential uh, to the kind of vision uh, that Nozick is articulating. And I don't have a well-worked-out theory uh, of how it is that you can rectify or combine uh, the kind of social libertarianism that he's talking about with the kind of democratic socialism that I would endorse at the economic level. Uh, my kind of position would, again, be that I think it is possible uh, to combine respect uh, for an egalitarian system uh, that redistributes resources in such a way that people become capable of leading flourishing lies, however that uh, is understood by them, uh, with a high degree of social liberalism or social libertarianism uh, that doesn't impose a strict vision of the good life when it comes to many issues. Uh, what the balance might be uh, is something that you would really need to work out on, work out if you wanted to present a full theory. Um, but I do also think that beyond just the theoretical enterprise, like I was getting at with the Wisconsin versus Yoder case, in some senses, we'll never be able to work out a fully comprehensive theory since so much uh, of this turns upon real life examples uh, and trying to solve these penumbral disputes when they come up on a case by case basis. Uh, so to a certain extent, in response to your question, uh, I would have to just sit there and be presented uh, with a context where a certain community uh, required a certain conception of property rights in order for it to pursue its vision of the good life that was antithetical to mine, uh, and then see if I could work out some way of resolving these tensions. Thank you for listening to this first bonus episode of Reimagining Liberty. This show is listener-supported. If you'd like to become a member, gain access to our Discord community, and listen to every new episode two weeks before its public release... Look for the link in the show notes or head to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe.